Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Join us, joining us will be Dr. Brian DeBosch, a gastroenterologist researcher who also looks into intermittent fasting as part of what he does. We thought this topic would be appropriate to the Lenten season because of fasting benefits for both body and soul. And we'll be reviewing his scintillating article entitled, Targeting Hepatocyte Carbohydrate Transport to Mimic Fasting and Calorie Restriction. Well, actually, it'll be targeting stuff that you understand. Uh, it's a great article, though. So, Andrew, why is this such an important topic? Well, yeah, we thought we would be really cute and introduce the intermittent fasting topic right before Lent. You know, I am a fan of efficiency, and while fasting can have spiritual benefits, it can also have physical benefits. And so this provides a little opportunity for double dipping or maybe fasting differently than you would have otherwise when you fast in Lent normally. Amen. So, so um, what are spiritual benefits of fasting, Andrew? You know, I, I would say there's a lot of them kind of in prepping for this show. You know, it, a lot of things come to mind. You know, it, fasting is one of the four or one of the five precepts of the church, the fourth precept. Um, and it's been even ordained in the Bible, even in the Torah on Yom Kippur. Uh, the Israelites were supposed to fast and we continue that in the Christian tradition as well. In the book of Tobit, uh, there's a quote about fasting that says, prayer is good when accompanied by fasting, almsgiving, and righteousness. And furthermore, in the Psalms, uh, there's talk about fasting as well. In Psalm 69, it says, when I humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. And I think we hear about it on Ash Wednesday too, don't we, from uh, usually the Gospel of Matthew, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. That's right. That sets the tone for the whole season of Lent, which is supposed to unite our sufferings with those of Christ and give us something that we can offer, not only for our own sins, but it gives us an opportunity to help others. And uh, the Catechism in good old paragraph number 1434 talks about those three things, fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, as the ways that we can interiorly do penance. And don't we love penance, Andrew? <laughs> well, it is the season. Everything has its season, and this is the season for penance. So hopefully, you know, looking at this from a spiritual perspective, number one, we fast during Lent anyways. But the way we might think about fasting hopefully would even, you know, get, get stronger with this interview. Because intermittent fasting is something beyond the traditional fasting where, at least as I've seen it introduced in, in many articles and things. You have one big meal and two small meals. That's not intermittent fasting. That's kind of a traditional fast that's recommended for religious purposes. But intermittent fasting is different. And that's one of the things we're going to get into today. There's actually several different types, but there are many health benefits, aren't there, Tom? Uh, there are. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that there are even health benefits when the calories are held the same, you know, eating it in multiple small meals over a day actually has different effects on the body than when you compartmentalize your eating into a four, six, eight hour window, and then the rest of it is, quote, a fast time. So that, that's fascinating. I can't wait to get a better understanding of why the heck that's the way it is, but it apparently is. And it can even have an effect um, on weight loss, although that's not its only benefit. Yes, and you know, I suspect that many of our listeners have heard of intermittent fasting one of the things that I kind of looked up were the most Googled diets. And this is from 2020, so re recent history, I'd say. But yes. number, number one was keto diet, which many people have heard of and we've talked about on the show. And number two was intermittent fasting. So I know this is something on many people's minds to begin with. Uh, it is. And, uh, you know, the intermittent fasting craze, you know, seems to have really increased in the last 10 years or so, and there's still a great degree of interest in it. And in fact, we did a show on this before we were on EWTN. And at that time, in oh, like sometime in early 2019, about three years ago, we did that. Uh, I've been doing it ever since. And I know that Chris more recently has started doing it. And when you mentioned efficiency, it's like in the morning, I can get all my morning routine stuff done now so easily without having to worry about when I'm going to eat. And I'm actually more focused when I am working uh, during the morning. It's uh, it's amazing. 
See, so you, you've got some kind of firsthand testimony here. It's been working out well for you, huh? It has. And I realized in college, you know, I was always one of those kids that closed the library at quarter to midnight, got back in my dorm room, bedroom by midnight, woke up at 730, had eight o'clock class. And I, I didn't even think, I think twice in two years in the dorm, I ate breakfast. Oh, really? So I, I realized I, and I never, and I always felt just as hungry at lunch when I ate breakfast as when I don't now. So it's actually been pretty easy. I don't have to count calories anymore. And boy, is that a blessing. Well, and I, I, there's so much emphasis on how many calories you eat. I know one of the things that, that I came across was that over the last 50 years, Americans eat about 24% more calories than they used to. And that, that goes along with the obesity epidemic and everything that we're familiar with in that regard. But while everybody's eating habits have changed and in general, people are eating more calories, 73% of people say that they're very focused on eating healthy. So it's something that I think that's on everybody's mind, especially you know, we had New Year not too long ago. That's yes. got to be the most common resolution is people wanting to lose weight, right? I wouldn't be surprised. And and this is one thing that's probably made it easier for me personally than anything else I've done. And I know that Chris has been enjoying it uh, also. Okay, man. So we're excited to learn more. I know before we get to our interview, Tom, you've got a question about uh, the liver we're going to be talking about today, right? Would I do that? Why, why would I do a question? Yes, I did. So <laughs> for today's medical trivia question, we have the category, the liver. That's an internal organ on your uh, right side there, just below the diaphragm. So the liver is the only organ that can regenerate itself. It's a good thing since this three pound mass of specialized cells performs over 500 functions vital to your health. At any moment, about one eighth of the blood in your body is actually in your liver, transferring food and energy containing molecules uh, in and out and also detoxifying. Because the liver can regenerate itself, living donor liver transplants are safely performed, especially in recipients who are children. They need less of a liver. So my question, what percent of a healthy adult liver must remain to regenerate a full-sized liver. And that only happens within a few months. What percentage of a healthy liver must remain behind? We'll have the answer to that near the end of the show, but before that and after the break, we'll have Brian DeBosch, gastroenterologist and researcher extraordinary with us here on Dr. Doctor. We're back on Dr. Dafter with Dr. Brian DeBosch. He's a double doctor, MD, PhD. He earned his undergraduate degree in cell and molecular biology, as well as German literature, a related subject, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He then earned his MD and PhD in molecular cell biology at Washington University School of Medicine uh, in St. Louis. Uh, from there, he completed residency training and his fellowship in gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition. He currently does research uh, in understanding how the liver responds to fasting and how that process can be used to treat obesity, diabetes, and fatty liver disease. He has a wife of 15 years, two daughters, 12 and 8, with whom he loves to travel at least by car these days. Uh, he is in St. Louis, Missouri. Brian, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Hi, thanks oh, for yeah. having me. Hey, in this article, and, and I did mention at the beginning, it, it has an unwieldy name if you're not in, in uh, medicine, but it says that three meals a day and snacks is new in our shared experience. So how did humans consume food before the modern age? And when and why did this change appear? Yeah, great question. This is a long history uh, that, that goes back to uh, ancient times before modern farming and before the Industrial Revolution allowed food to come to us rather than the other way around. And the only people uh, 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 in ancient times, the only people who could eat uh, us, uh, three square meals a day were the really good hunters. Uh, for this uh, fascinating evolution, I wanna point the audience to an article called Breakfast, Lunch and Dinner, Have We Always Eaten Them? by Denise uh, Winterman in the BBC News Magazine way back in 2012. Uh, she states there that uh, even the ancient Romans broke fast uh, only at noon or later as a sign of austerity and self-control. And more than one meal was actually considered gluttony. <laughs> and then fast forward to the <laughs> and uh, fast forward to the Middle Ages, nothing could be eaten before morning mass. And and then uh, uh, somewhere between the 17 and 1800s, a morning meal became a part of the experience of the wealthy. But then moved to the 1800s during the Industrial Revolution, where we began to have a, a set work schedule and day laborers had to sustain themselves through the day. And at that time, 
a, a three meal a day paradigm became part of the common experience for, for um, the, the high and medium and low, uh, lower tiers of society. And then in the 20th century, another revolution occurred by John Harvey Kellogg, who invented <laughs> the first cornflake. Yes, lots of carbs. <laughs> and <laughs> Yes, and he built this into a now billion dollar industry. And by the 1920s, now our government had been promoting breakfast as the most important meal of the day, whereas it was not even a part of our our uh, daily regiment uh, a century or two before that. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, we just kind of take it for granted. And you can, I can almost hear my, my mom when I was a little kid <laughs> <laughs> talking about the importance of breakfast, but especially it being so new in our experience. You know, it's, it's interesting to me. Your research involves a lot of calorie restriction and kind of the, the discussion of restricting calories. You describe it as being the opposite of overnutrition. How do you define an appropriate calorie intake when you look at the day as a whole? Yeah. So, uh, the, the the quick answer is that everybody's appropriate caloric intake is is individual to them, and uh, the way that that should be determined is that in a growing child, appropriate caloric intake is enough to maintain linear growth while maintaining a a weight in in a healthy percentile defined as between the the tenth and the eighty uh, fifth percentile uh, for their weight for age, or in an adult who is post adolescent, uh, enough calories that are required to maintain a a healthy weight in, in the moderate range again in percentile. That that can range anywhere from, say, for a 45-year-old female who's relatively inactive from 1,800 kcals per day, all the way to, um, as you may know, Michael Phelps at the peak of his training, <laughs> who famously consumed eight to 10,000 kcals a day and probably somewhere in between is is uh, what the most people and, and kcals for the listener stands for kilocalories. We usually just in lay terms refer to them as calories. So eight thousand yes. calories a day. Wow, <laughs> he's a lucky man. <laughs> I I think at some point though he even got tired of how much he had to eat to, to keep up. Uh, Absolutely. That is what I've heard as well. So you talk about there being an epidemic rise in overnutrition, which is really overeating since around 1900. So what happened that before this, you know, obesity wasn't as common and eating too much wasn't as common. Is Harvey Kellogg to blame? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, uh, all I can say, um, you know, staying true to the data are that there's a clear association between the advent of a common experience of three meals per day and an advent of, of easy access or relatively easy access to, uh, to uh, the beginning of processed foods with the Industrial Revolution uh, somewhere around the, the, the beginning of the, ni- uh, the 1900s. You know, whereas, whereas before, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it required a really good hunter to be able to eat three meals a day and to acquire food. Uh, the the advent of the Industrial Revolution brought food to us rather than the other way around. I like it the way that you're just sticking to what we can um, we we can prove or surmise based on evidence. Um, our listeners like that. Excellent. Happy to do so. So, if we overeat, I think your article mentioned that we are more prey to inflammatory diseases that can cause problems with our heart, our metabolism, even even dementia. How does that work? Yes, well, probably the, the, the most direct line between chronic inflammation and overnutrition is tied to adipose tissue or fat tissue. So uh, as, we, as we've all maybe personally experienced, uh, overnutrition over time leads to an accumulation of fat. Now, not all fat is created equally. There's subcutaneous fat or fat just below the skin, the fat that none of us really like to have because you <laughs> yes. can see it. And then, and then there's a, some, something called visceral fat. That is the fat that lies within the peritoneal sheath that is thought to be more inflammatory in nature. So tell our listeners where the peritoneal sec- sheath is. Ah, yes. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> the middle of the gut. So actually, a, a better way to, to, to make this more sort of real to people, we have all seen uh, people on the street, uh, or uh, in my case, maybe the mirror, <laughs> where uh, people are... Par- People are pear-shaped or, uh, or apple-shaped. Yes. Apple meaning uh, they carry their fat high, so to speak, uh, maybe the, the former football player. And then, uh, and then the pear shape, wherein subcutaneous fat is a little bit more droopy, and, and it, it tends to appear at least less, quote-unquote, fit. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it tends to be the, those people who, who carry their fat high who have more peritoneal fat rather than subcutaneous fat. 
Uh, and it is that peritoneal fat that uh, seems to be uh, more inflammatory. So in that's nature. deep around the abdominal organs, that fat. Correct. Yes. The fat that sits around the liver, around uh, the kidneys and other, other uh, uh, peritoneal Very good. Organs. Mm-hmm. So Brian, what happens to, to people who have this situation and then they change their diet? What happens to their cardiometabolic disorders and their risk for dementia and other things? Yes. Now, uh, the, the data that we have in humans on dementia, for example, is relatively limited, as you can imagine. Uh, adhering to a caloric restriction diet for a long period of time to measure a long-term outcome like, uh, like dementia is yes. difficult. However, uh, however, the data in metabolic disease like cardiovascular, uh, uh, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and fatty liver, as well as abnormal circulating lipids, that is relatively um, common in in the literature. And what we do know is that changing the diet has clear benefits on things like circulating lipids, uh, especially the bad cholesterol called LDL, good benefits on the good cholesterol like HDL. And then overall, one can lower their cardiovascular risk uh, uh, at least through lowering their uh, overall glucose control and lowering diabetes risk factors as measured by A1C. Well, let's understand this carbohydrate carbohydrate thing and what the liver does was that I would like to do what my kids did for years. They watched Ms. Frizzle on the Magic School Bus. They got small like a carbohydrate and traveled down the mouth. Can you take us on that journey from a carbohydrate in the mouth on the way to the liver and what it does in the liver and, and what the important steps in this path are? Yes. Okay. Uh, so a, a, a carbohydrate that's ingested into the mouth will travel through the esophagus into the stomach where if it was a, uh, uh, if, if it was a, uh, a more complex piece of food rather than simple carbohydrate, so uh, then that food is broken down. So like a starch. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, it is broken down into its, into its uh, monomers or, or, uh, single subunits like glucose and fructose. Uh, this then travels into the small intestine where, a, where the carbohydrate is then absorbed through specialized transporters called glucose transporters. Uh, these transporters are required because glucose can't just uh, pass through the membranes or uh, pass through tissue freely. It does require specialized transporters. When, uh, when, it is, uh, when it's transported through the intestinal cells called enterocytes through these transporters, there are two possible fates for this, uh, this carbohydrate. First, it can be absorbed directly into the plasma, where it then interfaces with muscle and fat tissue, among other tissues, which then take up the, the molecule of glucose and metabolize it for energy or store it uh, often as, as fat or glycogen, the long-term storage form of glucose. The other fate of, of this absorbed glucose through the enterocyte is to go through the portal circulation to then interface with the liver cell called the hepatocyte. In the hepatocyte, it is then uh, taken up through, again, specialized transporters. And then again, it can be metabolized in one of a couple of ways. First, it can be, uh, it can be burned into energy, ATP, which is the currency of energy in the cell. It can be stored as uh, store or converted into fat or stored as fat through a process called lipogenesis. Or finally, it can be stored again as the main storage form of glucose, which is uh, which is glycogen for the long term. So with uh, with another guest on the show who specializes in taking care of people with obesity, he said, if you want to grow fat, eat lots of sugar and carbohydrates. And right here, you said that the liver can make fat out of carbohydrates. I don't know how many people realize that, but how important is it to understand that? Oh, it, it, it's quite important. Now, um, when, when we were hunter gatherers on, on the plains, I, I suppose, you know, uh, much of, much of our, um, we, the yes, collective yes. we, I suppose, uh, much of our diet was, uh, was predominantly through what one could gather. So, um, grains, berries, um, uh, and, and, and plant matter. Uh, this is not, as you can imagine, rich in, in fat. Uh, thus, the, uh, in order to, uh, to, to give our bodies substrate for, uh, for, for storing long-term fat to survive the winter, for example, we needed to develop a way, adapt a way by which we could convert simple glucose carbons into long-term storage forms of carbon like fat and like protein and muscle. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a remarkable adaptation, but it is a way uh, uh, and, and 
evolutionarily uh, ingrained way to uh, to be able to store the glucose that we eat. Now, we're talking a lot about carbohydrates because obviously that that plays a big role as we get towards the intermittent fasting. Why why might restricting carbohydrates coming into the body into the liver help with obesity above and beyond just calorie restriction? Yes, uh, that, that's a great question, and actually one that that's uh, kind of the focus of, of the research that we do in, in our laboratory. Now, apart from just being a simple calorie, glucose and other carbohydrates seem to provide signals first, uh, sort of systemically to the brain as to uh, as to our fed fast state, but uh, perhaps more importantly to the hepatocyte, the liver cell, as to what the fed fast state of the organism is. The reason that's important is is uh, because when we are in a fasted state, then our, our our metabolism shifts to burning fat from the periphery, sending it to the liver, uh, so that it can be turned into glucose to feed our brain, which all, which predominantly uses glucose, or uh, uh, it's it's turned into uh, energy directly by fat oxidation in the liver by restricting uh, carbohydrates. Uh, one can actually shift preferentially the metabolism of the body from glucose to fat. So what what kind of signal do carbohydrates send? Because I'm under the uh, impression that, you know, fats release, oh, what is it, ghrelin or something else that tells your body you feel full mm-hmm. and proteins, you release something. But I've been told that carbohydrates, they don't really send you a signal that you're full until you're just stuffed. Is that true or is there a special signal? Yes. Um, uh, is there a special signal for satiety? Well, certainly CCK, cholecystokinin, uh, as well as ghrelin and GIP. These are all very important satiety signals secreted within the enteroendocrine system in the gut in response to a meal, especially or most perhaps most potently by fat over, say, carbohydrates and protein. That's one mechanism by uh, by which we uh, by which we sense that we're that we're full. And fat indeed is better at, at exerting that effect. But in addition to that, it seems uh, rather than uh, rather than having a specific appetite uh, effect, it seems that uh, that a molecule of glucose actually turns on um, uh, turns on sort of fasting type mechanisms like FGF twenty one secreted from the liver to then begin and enhance the the, the fasting and fat oxidation protocol. So in if the you're, body. Uh, and that appears to be so if you're eating carbohydrates broken down into glucose, that helps put you into a fasting state? Ah, oh, sorry. It, it, uh, it shuts off okay. the, the fasting program. It's a very powerful uh, uh, um, fed state uh, enabler. So, so in your research, if the liver is unable to take in um, the, the sugar, the glucose, either because you're not eating it or you're preventing it with a medication the way you're researching, what effects will that have on the body? Well, our work uh, indicates that if you can restrict glucose from entering the hepatocyte, then you can sort of more or less fool the hepatocyte into thinking that you're simply not eating a meal. It's quite remarkable. And, and what I mean by that is that when you restrict glucose, but otherwise um, allow the animal to eat any other macronutrient and just block the entry of glucose or fructose into the liver, you can still turn on many of the same fasting-induced uh, hormonal pathways that are turned on when the animal is simply not eating anything at all. That includes uh, secreted proteins like FGF21, and it and it includes the the fat oxidation program in the cell in the liver cell, which is uh, which is turned off in the presence of the glucose. That is activated. So, when so you start burning fat if the carbohydrate can't get in the liver. That is and correct. Aren't there? Go ahead, Andrew. I was going to say too, just as we're talking, glucose in some ways is kind of a currency for energy in, in our body, is it not? That when when we're restricting glucose, we're primarily burning the extra fat. Is that right? Uh, when you restrict glucose, you burn the extra fat. Yes, that's correct. It is, it is a very powerful suppression, suppressant of the fat. So even protocol. when we're restricting carbohydrates, but not necessarily restricting calories, you're going to have a preferential fat burning mechanism at play. Yes, that's okay. correct. And that's what happens with intermittent fasting. So you're kind of mimicking intermittent fasting, even though people might be eating proteins 
and fats at the same time. Is that right with your research? Uh, yes. By, by fooling the liver into thinking there is no glucose around, you're, you're uh, essentially hijacking the, the ability of the, of the cell to sense that you're having a meal at all because glucose is the main signal to say, hey, we're eating a meal. It's time to go. It's time to stop fat burning and start glucose. Okay. Now, I've been taught that glucose. you can't fool with Mother Nature, which, of course, God made. But so, <laughs> for instance, in my area of dermatology, there's some people who do liposuction. I don't do it, but some people do. And when you suck fat out of one area, it doesn't make you skinny forever if you keep eating. You just grow fat in really weird places. So what <laughs> what is like the downside of people continuing to consume calories if they had a pill available, there is not one available yet for humans, but if there was one, what would happen to them or what happens in animals maybe where you've done this? Sure. That, uh, okay. So uh, directly speaking to the animals on a long-term uh, glucose transporter inhibitor uh, regimen. And by long-term in rodents, I mean six months. Okay. Uh, that's you know a good quarter of their lives. Yeah. So uh, somewhat long, but it's difficult to translate that to human data. Nonetheless, our long-term studies have not indicated any um, any untoward effects that we've been able to detect. Now, um, you know, things like behavior, we, we aren't measuring. We're, we're really only measuring metabolism and cardiovascular outcomes. So outside of the, that realm, I can't say the long-term effects and on that. What have been the good In, effects that you've measured? Uh, now, that uh, we, can, we can definitively say are uh, the metabolic outcomes include um, uh, weight loss, um, improved lipid profiles, and decreased fat content in the liver, among among a few other things. But those are the main ones. Man, that's really good. And so, our until there's a pill available, intermittent fasting is kind of what would be the uh, the behavioral analog to to what we're talking about, right? That is, or uh, ketogenic. Okay, ketogenic. Very good. And we're going to get to that after the break here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Brian DeBosch talking about intermittent fasting as we get ready for the season of Lent here. Brian, how does your research apply to intermittent fasting? Essentially, the, the research that we do understands or works to understand the mechanisms by which intermittent fasting appears to be therapeutic metabolically. And what we're trying to do is trying to mimic that uh, fasting response signal by simply by restricting carbohydrate entry into the and liver. I guess maybe just more generally as well, what is intermittent fasting? Is it a specific thing or are there different ways of doing it? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, intermittent fasting I, uh, clinically would imply uh, a regimented feed uh, and fast program that typically involves a 16 or 18 hour minimum fast. And I'm happy to get into yes, why that number do. exists. but. Oh, now. Okay. Uh, so uh, when, when the moment you finish eating your last bite of dinner, you go into the fasted state, provided you're not eating anything overnight in the middle of that. Uh, your, your body has a clock of about 16 hours to get rid of uh, the exogenous glucose that you just ingested into your mouth, in addition to the stored glycogen that exists in your liver. At about the 16-hour mark after your fast, you begin to rely less on exogenous glucose, less on uh, stored glycogen, and more on peripheral fat that is drawn from your adipose tissue going to your liver for oxidation and for uh, new glucose production called gluconeogenesis. That's why 16 hours exists as sort of the hallmark. Ah, uh, so 16. Uh, I've heard lower numbers in the past. So all my glycogen is gone with 16 hours of fasting. That's correct. Yeah, uh, all of it. Uh, no, your reliance on glycogen as a ah, fuel uh, is surpassed by by yeah by ketogenesis, uh, uh, ketogenesis and fat oxidation at sixteen hours. And then what happens at sixteen hours? What is ketogenesis, and why is that important? Ketogenesis is uh, the process by which uh, your your body goes into uh, starvation mode because you're no longer relying. Uh, on on exogenous glucose or glucose uh, produced from the liver to feed the brain. So the, the body really is all about the brain and, and uh, basically- So the uh, psychiatrists yeah, uh, have the most important specialty and the neurosurgeons, huh? <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. And, 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 be, and, and I, guess, I guess one could say, uh, because all of our functions subserve uh, having a healthy brain, I, I guess one could sort of make that argument. 
but but uh, anyways, the reason uh, the reason we go into ketogenesis is because uh, we, we we no longer have sufficient exogenous glucose or or glycogen produced glucose to feed the brain and keep it from essentially going into a, a hypoglycemic state, which clouds our judgment and our and our thought processes. Uh, ketogenesis is uh, wherein uh, you turn either uh, alanine from the glucose alanine cycle or um, or fat that is drawn from peripheral adipose tissue, turn it into ketones, which is the second choice fuel for the brain. Very good. And But this could also be done with a, a very low-carb diet, a ketogenic diet, without the intermittent fasting. Is that correct? That's correct. So again, the absence of glucose or, or minimization of glucose in the diet, uh, again, uh, forces, uh, forces the system into uh, producing glucose in some other way to uh, to uh, to feed the brain, or again uh, using ketones as the secondary fuel through other means like glucosalanine cycle, as well as uh, ketones. Brian, you, you mentioned ketones are the second choice for the brain. Are there any symptoms of that? Some people talk about when they do a strong carbohydrate suppression that they might have occasional brain fog or something. Is that real? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's real. I, I uh, when when I began my journey down intermittent fasting, I definitely felt that. Uh, my, the way I surmise that. So first of all, everybody's everybody's subjective experience to uh, to, to different forms of, of dietary intake is you know is probably of different etiology. However, uh, the way I surmise this uh, is, is that uh, part of the quote unquote brain fog is due to the inadequate uh, production of either ketones or glucose from gluconeogenesis. This goes away over time once you once you sort of train like muscle training, it's liver training now, uh, where you train your liver to produce glucose more efficiently and oxidize fat more efficiently. Well. So why is it good for your body to be able to be in a fed and a fasted state versus, you know, a little meal every three hours like a lot of nutritionists say? Ah, yes. Now, uh, a couple of reasons. One, one of those reasons we've already gone over, which is uh, uh, constant intake of, of especially carbohydrates tends to suppress the overall fasting program. But apart from that, uh, glucose itself is a stimulus for one of the main growth factors or storage factors in the body, which is insulin, which comes from the pancreas. Uh, now, insulin is a very powerful uh, storage signal wherein it allows um, ingested glucose to be taken up by peripheral tissues like muscle and adipose tissue, fat tissue, uh, and ultimately stored. Very good. So any program that someone starts should have at least a 16-hour block of not consuming calories. Is that correct? That's correct. Certainly water and acaloric uh, uh, beverages to maintain hydration, but but no, uh, I would recommend no uh, calories particularly. Okay, so let's push that little glucose. envelope there. Okay, some people might want to do, I do a noon to 8 p.m. window of eating each day. If I go to morning mass and receive the Eucharist, you know, I've seen, you know, that's one or two calories. Is that going to take me out of the fasting state? Uh, you can receive the Eucharist with confidence that you're not <laughs> breaking fast. It is it is quite unlikely that one or two kcals uh, would would uh, um, suppress the fasting state, uh, mainly because transport of, of nutrients by itself and the the act of mastication or yes. chewing uh, and and peristalsis do require energy, some investment to uh, uh, to acquire. Okay, I'm going to be like Abraham at Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, the Eucharist. Now, I like these certain flavored uh, drinks which have ten calories, 10 kcals per bottle. If I have that in the morning when I'm doing surgery in between patients, is that going to push me out of a fasting state? Uh, again, with that number of calories, probably not. There are no great data to, to, to directly speak to that. However, uh, the data I do have yes. is the following. That sugar-sweetened beverages, not, not talking about a specific type or flavor or caloric amount. Any sugar sugar sweetened beverages um, in in a large meta analysis are indeed associated with an increased risk of weight gain, uh, obesity, type yes. two diabetes, and cardiovascular. Absolutely. But so, did you have some data on a number of calories that definitely takes you out of the fasting state? Yes. Now, this is uh, this is not that helpful, but it is the only human data of which I'm aware. Uh, now, uh, 600 kcals. Now, as I mentioned, uh, anywhere between 1,800 and 8,000 yes. uh, for Michael Phelps per day 
uh, is, is, is sort of a, that, that range of intake. Now, that means that 600 kcals a day uh, is starvation or severe caloric restriction. And what we do know is that even in the face of severe caloric restriction at 600 kcals per day, uh, uh, 600 kcals, if it is glucose, pure glucose infused into healthy humans, can actually completely suppress the starvation program, even though ostensibly by the number, you are indeed starving. Wow. That's very, very good. Well, and you bring up a, a good point that glucose has these special properties over and above the calorie count. Looking at that on the other side, the side that I think most of us think about more is, okay, how, how can I get and maintain a healthy weight? If you hold everything constant, you have one person eating a low carbohydrate diet and another person eating a balanced diet with carbs as well as other macronutrients, who's going to lose more weight? Uh, it is well known uh, that that low carbohydrate diets tend to be more effective, at least in the short term, at at inducing weight loss. So, whereas a uh, a, a uh, mild caloric restriction of ten to twenty uh, ten to twenty percent um, might induce o- over a six month period somewhere around a three percent net weight loss, one can expect somewhere around a five percent net weight loss or so uh, over that same period of time. Same calories. Uh, different macronutrient. That's a really good point. Same number of calories you lose weight if you shift the macronutrients. So Brian, it sounds like you do intermittent fasting. Is that right? Why do. do you do it? Uh, First of all, I didn't want to seem hypocritical uh, <laughs> recommending this based on my research uh, and, and yet not following it. Um, but beyond that, um, I there there are many benefits actually that I can speak do. to. Number one, probably the most important, is that I just feel yes. better. Meaning, yes. uh, I feel poorly when I when I eat breakfast, yes. and, and I often regret it. Amen, brother. Uh, <laughs> I see a hash brown. <laughs> I see a hash brown. I'm like, man, that's good. Maybe I'll try just once, just once, and and then I just feel terrible yes. after eating. Um, but yeah, so I feel better, and, and in fact, actually, so. Um, you know, I, I joked a little bit about being parachuted, but uh, in all seriousness, um, you know, I uh, there was a time when I was uh, when I was very much exercising, and I would increase the intensity and frequency and amount of hours I'd spend exercising, and just eat more to compensate. And I couldn't get myself um, sort of where I wanted to be health-wise, n- numerically, mm-hmm. uh, with my LDL numbers, my A1C. Uh, and it was only when I stopped focusing on just more and more intense exercising, uh, but then that I just went to this regimen slowly, of course, but went to a, a 16, eight, uh, and then, uh, ultimately 21 ish to three intermittent fasting protocol that, that I could maintain a healthy sort of biochemical, uh, uh, measurements as well as, as well as weight. And it was much more, uh, easily done than, than with an intense exercise. And why might our listeners are listening like, well, we're, we're spewing out a lot of information and stuff, but really, okay, so I might feel better and I might lose weight because I can eat the same number of calories. Is that right? Can you eat the same number of calories and lose weight versus spreading it out over the day? Uh, yes, yes, you can. Now, I, I, my restriction ends up being, at least when I measured it, it ended up being about a 15% caloric restriction on top. So there's a little confounder there. However, yes, if you do a controlled human experiment, uh, one most recently in the journal Cell Metabolism in 2018, it's a beautiful study. Same number of calories over a 12 hour period in, in obese humans, men versus six hour period. And uh, uh, the men uh, on a six hour eating protocol, did clearly better on a number of readouts, including A1C and LDL, uh, bad cholesterol. How about weight? No. uh, Yes. uh, I don't recall the exact number. I think it was somewhere along, you know, most trials, uh, which is around that three to five percent. So it was less. uh, Okay. So you can eat the same amount and weigh less. You can eat the same amount and feel better. Any other good? I mean, those are great reasons. Less diabetes. Is that another reason? Type two? Yes, it. Uh, yes, it is. Well, it's very interesting, too, because you, you had mentioned in your own story of trying to exercise your way out of yes. maybe bad LDLs. And clinically, you just don't see it that often. I mean, I, I get to see a lot of people who are really resistant to starting a statin medication, especially if they're, they feel otherwise healthy. They don't want to start taking prescriptions if they don't need to. And so many people just exercising as much as they can, and the numbers don't move. But intermittent fasting might be a good alternative and maybe even more effective. 
I agree. At least it was for me. Uh, and the compensatory eating was probably, at least for me, the biggest problem uh, that, that precluded me from you know, achieving my health goals. Now, in your paper, you mentioned something interesting. Okay, one of the, the little sugar molecules is glucose, but another one is fructose. And you say that's even less healthy than glucose, yet our foods are full of high fructose corn syrup. What does that mean for us? Absolutely. So, so yes, uh, you know, uh, that I, I will say the human data overall still are a little bit mixed, but we do know a lot about fructose biology and it is clearly, its metabolism is clearly different from metabolism of glucose. The main difference between fructose and glucose is that fructose is, is very specifically metabolized uh, through, through what's called the AMP deaminase pathway in the liver cell. Glucose is not. Um, now, uh, the, the difference here is that through the AMP deaminase pathway, fructose generates a, a compound that you, you may even have heard of uh, through, through this uh, podcast, uric acid. Now, uh, uric acid, uh, we probably all know this from being the, the culprit in kidney stones, being painful in that way. But also uric acid, high uric acid or hyperuricemia is a cardiovascular and metabolic risk factor as well, uh, for, with good reason, um, because clearly it does modulate peripheral energy metabolism as well. And that is specific to fructose. Very good. So it's good to avoid things with high fructose corn syrup if we can help it. I would say so, so. Brian, what what are the potential applications of your current research you're doing? Are, is there an intermittent fasting pill in our future? Well, uh, I, I guess I can say I, I'd, I'd love to say we're working on it. And, and I guess uh, at least from, from a research standpoint, we are. Uh, but but um, for now, I would say that the, the field of fasting mimetic type therapies is still very much in, in its infancy. So you may have heard of things like resveratrol, rapamycin. Uh, and uh, some of the polyamines, I guess. Um, those, those types of uh, therapies are, are, are well studied in animal models, not as much in humans. And so uh, still a long way to go on the fasting mind medic type uh, field. But what is your hope? What do you hope that your research would lead to in 10 to 20 years? Uh, I would. Now, uh, well, first of all, I would like for not my research to result in everybody um, uh, following a heart healthy diet, exercise regularly, uh, eat, uh, eat properly and not in, not in, uh, you know, excess amounts. Uh, but to the extent that we already know, even, even from my own clinical experience, it is difficult to get somebody to adhere to a long-term lifestyle intervention, being, be it quitting smoking, uh, caloric restriction, intermittent fasting, um, exercise regularly. All these are difficult to adhere. Um, and to that extent, then, uh, I, I think it, it behooves us to have a therapy that uh, that might mimic the fasting response and, and thereby mitigate uh, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, and obesity. And, and for me, that would be the form of hopefully a glucose transporter inhibitor uh, that blocks sugar into the hepatocyte. And you know, Brian, one of the things that you had kind of mentioned is, or you, the way you describe this sounds like a very much of a lifestyle change that's all encompassing. As you said, it's hard to get that started. What would be a small way somebody could experiment or start working these practices into their daily life? Well, I, I think uh, for, for me, this was a, um, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty slow and steady uh, increase to, to get to where I am with about a 21 to three intermittent fast. Uh, the, way, the way that I was able to do it and the way that patients I see um, uh, trying to do it on their own, not by a specific re recommendation, because this is not uh, sort of an FDA approved therapy. <laughs> But, but uh, uh, if I or patients attempt this, it, uh, the, the, the idea is low and slow. And so that could include something like either uh, skipping breakfast or pushing it back a few hours, a few more minutes each day, for example, or each week pushing it back, or just uh, simply stopping eating after your, uh, after your dinner uh, with or without a dessert, just quit eating after that, go to bed and then eat a normal breakfast. And then slowly, uh, slowly truncate the amount of time over which you'll eat anything through the day. You'll I've heard it said that children and pregnant women should not try doing this. Are there other groups that should not try doing this? Who should not? Um, now, yeah, that's interesting. Outside of those two groups you mentioned, there, there do seem, I have had patients who, uh, who seem to have difficulty uh, despite sort of that, that, that training of the liver that, sure. I, that, I, that I spoke of, difficulty with sort of brain fog and difficulty tolerating uh, this uh, feeling dizzy or, or lightheaded th 
throughout the day, uh, no matter how much we sort of try to try to do this in a controlled way. I, I would say that anybody who has uh, difficulty with the symptoms over a prolonged period of time, after say you know two, four, six weeks of attempting even mild caloric uh, or time restricted feeding. I think uh, maybe maybe a different avenue uh, w- would be better. Served. As we're into our last minute, what resources would you recommend for patients who want to learn more about this or listeners who want to learn more? Yes, uh, certainly. Let's see here. Um, uh, Jason Fung yes. uh, is is an author who is uh, who has written much about uh, the effects of, of uh, macronutrient intake and timing of feeding. Uh, certainly a, a well-respected uh, author as well. Uh, and then more into the sort of the basic science uh literature. Um, uh, uh, Sachananda Panda uh, is, is a prolific author uh, who, who talks about uh, circadian yes. rhythm in metabolism as well. Very much impinges on on the idea of um, uh, time restricted feeding as well. Certainly many others, but those are the two that come immediately to mind across two different And realms. do you have any final words of wisdom you want to leave with listeners? Yes. Uh, if, uh, if you think that uh, something like intermittent fasting is worthwhile in trying for you to meet your health goals, I, I would, um, let's see, I can't recommend it formally. I would say that my own personal <laughs> experience with it has been positive, and it's quite doable if you're willing to, uh, to stick. Brian DeBosch, thanks for being with us to learn about intermittent fasting, carbohydrate restriction, etc. God bless you. We hope to have you back. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we are back with Dr. Doctor after our wonderful interview. Tom has got a related trivia question talking about the liver. Right, Tom? Right. We were talking about what the liver does metabolically, but let's talk about liver transplants. You can take part of an adult's liver and give it to somebody else, especially children, and both will live. The question is, what percent of a healthy liver must remain so that a full liver will regenerate? And the answer is not much about one quarter or 25%, uh, which I think is remarkable. That really is incredible. People ask frequently about, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about lungs trying to repair themselves after emphysema. I said, well, it doesn't really work, but the liver can do that. Right. It's the one organ that you can cut apart. It's it's our starfish organ. <laughs> you know, you talk about cutting an arm off a starfish, it'll grow it back. And thank that goodness, work too, for us. <laughs> because the liver, the liver does a lot of work and takes a lot of abuse, you know. So I'm, I'm glad that it can regenerate in that way. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, you can do uh, that. And plus, you know, kidney transplants, living donor for kidney. Yeah. Uh, that's a good thing, too. Living donor for bone marrow. You can do that. Uh, living donor for heart. Not so much. <laughs> not, not there yet. Does not regenerate. <laughs> Does not regenerate. So there was a boatload of practical information, little nuggets that Brian shared. So you had your work cut out for you coming up with a top three, Andrew. Yeah, I was I was overwhelmed, pleasantly overwhelmed with all of the data he had, which is really what I think is, you know, there's so much of, of food science and general recommendations that you read different things, you hear things from different people. But when he's he's bringing this data out, I really like to see that. And the the top three that I really took away with are some of them are kind of basic science stuff. Number one would be that carbs, in particular, lead to those signals to signal to your brain and your liver whether you're in a fasting state or a fed state, as they call it. Which obviously, when you're in that fasting state, your body's preferentially going to burn the fat, which is the goal for a lot of people engaging in diets. So yes. it was very interesting for me to learn that. The The second takeaway that I thought was very interesting was that 16-hour mark where your body yes. switches from primarily glucose, which is, is the number one thing that it uses, and it switches over to ketogenesis where you're using either stored fat or he had mentioned the alanine to power the brain and the body. And that's really what we're trying to engage with intermittent fasting or as we were kind of postulating someday maybe a pill with his research. Well, um, and that ties in with what your research found out that the top two Googled diets were keto and intermittent fasting. They're really two different ways of achieving the same thing, aren't they? Right. It's trying to get that fasting state by restricting the carbohydrates and tricking your body to think, I've got to burn this fat because I'm not going to get to eat anytime soon. Right. So yeah, it's a great way to, to, to burn fat. And number three, Andrew. Number three, I, I would say the big takeaway was even just from his personal experience 
was the ability to change some of these risk factors and some of these markers, especially lipid profiles, the, the one that I think of routinely, changing that with your diet rather than having necessarily to go to a pill or do incredible amounts of exercise. I know I, I get to see patients a lot and they try their best with the exercise and it only moves a little. But when you think about it, so many metabolic diseases, but also at the same time, people who are metabolically healthy, it's because of the diet. And doing a program like intermittent fasting can really contribute that. So if your numbers are not perfect and your last lab values were not that good, you might want to try that even in addition to exercise to try and make your numbers better. I think that's true. Uh, and I experience kind of a reverse brain fog. I feel really clear. And then when I eat my first meal, I'm not quite as sharp for a little while. It's kind oh, of interesting. Really? Well, you yes. probably get used to it too, or your brain's expecting one thing, you know? I, I think you're right, Andrew. Well, listeners, thanks for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We ask you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend if you think it's good news and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can also find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive deeper into some of the topics, check our website for bonus links and information in our post for each episode. Just click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.